Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, I'm excited to announce that all of my prior episodes of Most Notorious have been uploaded onto Patreon, all interruption-free. Bonus content will soon be coming. Subscribe at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. Help out the show and get the inside scoop on all the interviews and episodes. Look forward to seeing you there. Now, on to the show. I'm so pleased to have as my guest Helen Rappaport, prolific British author, who has written numerous books on both the Victorian era and the Russian monarchy. She's here to chat about her latest, called The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. So great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. So I did an episode on Rasputin quite a while ago, but we didn't get into the history of the Romanov family at all. So that's where I'd like to start. Can you talk about Alexandra and Nicholas who they were, and how they came to power. Well, Nicholas and Alexandra were the last Tsar and Tsaritsa of Russia, the Russian Empire. Nicholas II um, unexpectedly became monarch in uh, November 1894 when his father died died after a very uh, serious illness of kidney disease. And he was rather propelled onto the throne much sooner than he had been prepared for. And he had only just a few months earlier become engaged to Alexandra of Hesse, a princess of Hesse and uh, Hesse by Rhine. And uh, because of his father's death, they uh, married quite soon after in Petersburg. So they came to the throne at the end of 1894. And of course, Alexandra as the wife of the Tsar of Russia, her primary duty was to produce an heir, as all royal wives, you know, that was their that was their role in life then. And the story that most people know something of is, of course, the tragedy that she had one daughter and another daughter and another daughter and another daughter. And after four daughters, she finally produced a son and heir only for it to be discovered quite soon after Alexei, the little boy, was born, that he had the one thing they had been dreading, that he had haemophilia, and that therefore his health was severely compromised and his prospects of living into adulthood were pretty poor. 
so the whole of the dynamic of the family um, changed when that little boy, precious boy, was born in 1904 because it, the, the pressure then was, first of all, to keep it a secret. They didn't want the people to find out that Zarevich had this kind of fatal gene. And secondly, to keep him alive. Um, so this kind of coloured the tone of the, the reign very much, the preoccupation with the haemophiliac son. And I think most people are probably aware of the, the history of hemophilia in the, the British royal line, right? Well, it was passed down, unfortunately, through the female line um, from Queen Victoria to Princess Alice, her her eldest, her second eldest daughter, who was the mother of Alexandra of Hesse. So Alexandra, unfortunately, was a carrier and um, it, it was passed on to her boy, Alexei. And um, it, it was, uh, uh, it, ha- it remains a great puzzle how haemophilia uh, appeared in the British royal family. We still don't really understand it. It's suggested that it was some kind of spontaneous genetic mutation. We just don't know how it got there. You've written so many books on the Romanovs. Well, three. (laughs) Three's enough. This is my third and last one. Don't worry. Okay. Maybe so many is an exaggeration, but but three three different books on one family is pretty amazing. Yeah. No, no. Sorry, no. Uh, What got you interested in the Romanov family to begin with, Uh, especially as a citizen of the United Kingdom? And what was it for you about the Russian monarchy that sparked your interest? Well, I, I'm much to my own surprise, to be honest. I mean, I'd never had it, had any interest in writing about royalty, except Queen Victoria, who. Being, but then that's slightly different. Um, as far as the Russians were concerned, it never crossed my mind to write about the Romanovs. It was only down to an agent I was with at the time, back in nine, I think about 2006, and we, I was searching around for a subject, and he said to me well, why don't you do the Romanovs? You know, you're a Russianist, you speak Russian, you love Russia. Why don't you write about the Russian royal family? I said, oh, no, I just don't fancy that because there was this kind of chocolate boxy sentimental image of the Romanovs, you know, girls in pretty frocks and big hats. And it was all a bit chintzy. It didn't particularly appeal to me, but the agent encouraged me to go away and think about it. And I decided right from the outset, I I didn't want to write a big biography of Nicholas or Alexander or anyone else. I would wanted to look in detail at a particular part of the story. And that's how I came to writing my first book, which was Ekaterinburg, which fundamentally is a kind of countdown to their murders, because the book, um, which is called Last Days of the Romanovs in America, by the way, um, book fundamentally covers just the last two weeks up to their murders. Um, so I did that, published that book in 2008, but all through the time I was researching it and writing it, I had the image of those four girls in the back of my mind, those four sisters. And by, you know, I decided I really felt that their story hadn't been told. They'd been completely marginalized by history as being just colorless and uninteresting, just pretty girls in the background, you know. So I kind of set myself this mission 
to uncover what I felt were their lost lives. You know, their who were they? What were their personalities? What were they like? How did they think and feel? There, there must have been more to them, I felt, than any book had told us. And so the end product of that was what became Romanoff Sisters in America and his four sisters in the UK. So that was book number two. And then I really thought I wasn't going to do any more Romanov books. But one thing has always kept coming back into my mind ever since I started working on them in 2006. And it's this big burning question. And it's a question I get asked and I still get asked at literature festivals or when I give a lecture on the Romanovs, people ask me, why could no one get them, get them out of Russia? Why did King George V let them down? Was it all his betrayal? Was it his fault? Why did he turn his back on them? And people seem to be very fixated that the failure to save the Romanovs and get them out of Russia was all about King George V. And I felt it was time to really come on, let's sit down and look at what really went on behind the scenes those last 18 months or so. Let's look at the situation, the circumstances, who was involved in any attempts to try and save them by diplomatic or other means. And let's really analyse how possible it could have been. An excellent summary of your books and a, and a great lead into my next question. I wanted to ask you about the daughters and the wrong ideas people have about who they were. I mean, Disney even made a movie about one, Anastasia, right? Where she Mm -hmm. survived her family's massacre. Not true, of course. Would you mind going through their names, talk a little bit about each one, their personalities, and how they just generally occupied their time in the palace? Well, let's start with their personalities. Um, The thing people don't realize is they were four very different young women. And they've just been lumped together, this sort of rather dull, homogeneous unit. And in fact, even their own mother anonymized them, rather. She divided them into two groups, the big pair and the little pair, i.e. the older two, Olga and Tatiana, and the younger two, Maria and Anastasia. Well, Olga was the eldest, and being the eldest, of course, the onus was always on her to set an example to her younger siblings. And so, therefore, she could be more serious than the others at times and feel the weight of responsibility. And as she grew older, she did get a bit fed up with her siblings at times that she always had to correct them and set an example. She was very emotional, moody, easily upset and and depressed. And as she got older and once she was in captivity, she did certainly become quite depressed and melancholic. She wore her heart on her sleeve, which meant she fell in love very easily. And of course, the awful thing in the story of these girls is that, um, was, I can't really speak the younger two, but the older two fell in love with men they could never marry because fundamentally there weren't any handy princes and grand dukes you know, that was suitable for them to marry. So they ended up constantly falling for or having passionate passions on members of the entourage. So this happened to Olga and it really broke her heart falling in love with particularly one one uh, of her father's close entourage called Pavel Varonov, a marriage that would never happen. So Olga 
that's Olga, quite moody, quite melancholy, loved music, loved poetry, quite introspective. Um, her second sister was quite different. She was very businesslike, very organized, never showed her feelings, extremely devoted to their mother, Alexandra. But she absolutely was a closed book, unlike her sister. She had hid away all her innermost feelings. She held herself together with great discipline. She was very private, but she got things done. And as time went on, the parents grew to really rely on Tatiana because if you wanted something done, you didn't ask Olga. She was hopeless and disorganized. Tatiana got things done. She was brisk. She was reliable. In fact, her sisters found her so bossy. They used to call her the governess. But she was a, an intensely private young woman. And the most admirable, admirable thing about her, I find, is in the war years, she shone as a very gifted and devoted nurse because she and Olga trained as nurses to help the war effort. And I think in dis different circumstances, she could have been perhaps, you know, could have gone on to become a doctor or, you know, certainly work in medicine. So that's Tatiana. The third sister, Maria, was sweet and soft and very, very lovely. She had huge blue eyes. Everyone used to call them Maria's saucers. She was very, very warm and loving, adored children, adored people, very kind and outward going. But because she was so kind of gentle and malleable, I think being the middle child with, you know, two siblings either side, she at times suffered from being piggy in the middle and perhaps got a bit neglected and at times bullied by the others. She certainly suffered at the hands of the youngest daughter, Anastasia, the much mythologized one, about far too much has been written, a lot of it, of course, entirely bogus, because no, she did not escape. Anastasia died with the others, but Anastasia was an extraordinarily wild, um, irrepressible child, a great mimic Loved to be the centre of the room. She loved everyone to take, take notice of her when she walked in a room. She loved showing off and doing theatricals. She was a very, very keen photographer. Took her box brownie everywhere with her. And in captivity, she was the one who kept the others going because she refused to be cowed. She refused to be depressed. So she was always trying to cheer everyone up. Uh, so she was an absolute one-off, a real maverick, a real wild child. Um, so as you can see, the four girls were very, very different. And yet, despite the difference, they actually, when the chips were down, were devoted to each other and looked after each other and clung to each other. I mean, literally clung to each other in those final moments when they were being shot at in that horrible cellar in the Apartheid house. And a little bit, if you don't mind, about the son as well. Is there a lot known about him? Oh, plenty. Plenty. I mean, Alexei was the center of the universe once he was born. Certainly, he was the center of his mother's universe because he was the long-for son and heir. And, um, of course, because of his hemophilia and the fact that they had to be so careful to protect him from any knocks or bangs or accidents that might cause bleeding into the joints, 
everyone sort of created this protective barrier around him. His sisters watched over him. His mother watched over him. But because of that, initially, he could be a complete spoiled brat. I think also he felt suffocated by all the attention directed at him by his mother and even his own sisters. And there are times where he just rebel and protest and say, why can't I be like other boys? Why can't I go and climb a tree and gallop off on my pony? And why can't I ride my bicycle and dive in, jump into the water and play with the other boys? His life was very circumscribed by that condition. And initially, he, as I said, was very, very spoilt and indulged by his mother. But the the, the touching thing about Alexei towards the end, you see him growing into a very sensitive, intuitive and charming young man who might in different circumstances have made a rather good czar. Um, of course, he didn't live to see it. Um, but he, he has certainly had a wonderful compassion for other people who suffered. He could really sympathize with people who like him were ill or disabled or sick in some way. So his his good qualities were only just beginning to develop when he died. You theorize in your book that if, if Nicholas had been raised in England, he, he might have turned out to be the perfect English gentleman, right? Well, in fact, he was very, very Anglophile. Nicholas spoke impeccable English, probably with even a bit of an English sort of lilt. He spoke as the aristocracy in Britain spoke. He and Alexandra conversed in English, um, you know, at home. I mean, amongst when he was on his own with the children, Nicholas spoke Russian to them, but Alexandra spoke English to them. So Nicholas had very English manners because also he was educated by an English tutor who kind of brought him up in the sort of English public school tradition and play fair and play the game and be gentlemanly and courteous and polite. So in many respects, Nicholas um, had very English sympathies and sensitivities in that regard. I know this could be a, a giant rabbit hole asking about Nicholas's handling of the government um, Russia's involvement in World War One, <laughs> but maybe this uh, in general. What, what kind of leader was he? Well, the, I think the, the unfortunate thing for Nicholas was that he was a far better and greater and more admirable family man than he ever was as a monarch. His basic problem was he had an absolute desperate fear of change, of reform, of progress, of changing anything about the old system that he had inherited from his father, Alexander III. He felt he had this almost divine duty to preserve the monarchy, the autocracy, and a quite a despotic one at that, intact exactly as it had been handed down to him. And it was his mission in life to preserve it and pass it on to Alexei. He was extremely reluctant about reform and change in terms of democratic reform. He was terrified of the revolutionary movement. His whole life became very circumscribed by it because, of course, there was a lot of political assassination going on from the 1880s. His own grandfather had been murdered. So it was a, a reality of his life. 
the, the revolutionary movement was after him. So he was very frightened of change. And although in the end he was um, persuaded to establish the Duma as fast as the Duma, the state Duma, the state legislature was set up, um, it would come into conflict with Nicholas trying to push things too far and he would shut it down. And it's a shame that he did not um he he wasn't he was so uncompromising about political reform i think if he'd had a different wife he might have been because alexandra in fact was even more intransigent than him well that leads me to the final member of the imperial family alexandra she was hated by many many people wasn't she can you tell us where the origins of that hatred came from well, uh, you got, you have to understand with Alexandra, she was a foreigner at the Russian court. She was, um, you know, she, she was an interloper. And the first thing that she encountered when she arrived at the Russian court was this hostility to her as a German, as a princess from quite a minor German duchy. She wasn't top drawer you know, Grand Duchess material like the Russian aristocrats with whom she was associating. She was quite lowly, but she had, you know, she had made a fantastic catch in that, you know, she was marrying the Emperor of Russia. She was disliked as being stiff and starchy and reserved. And from the moment she arrived in Russia, she made it very clear she didn't want to have anything to do with the decadent Russian society in St. Petersburg. She thought it would corrupt her children. She didn't like many of her Russian relatives for very good reasons, actually. A lot of them were fairly bitchy and backbiting and jealous and could be extremely unpleasant. So there was an instant antipathy between her and her Russian relatives. She didn't really get on with her her Russian, well, in fact, Danish mother-in-law, Maria Fyodorovna. Um, And so what happened almost from the moment she arrived, she retreated. She was pregnant quite a lot, obviously, for the first 10 years. And she kept to her own very, very trusted, hand-picked inner circle of ladies and on members of the entourage and really had virtually nothing to do with the world outside in St. Petersburg. If she could get out of public engagement, she would. She was always pleading illness or indisposition. She was in many ways a sick woman who I think suffered from a whole range of real and perhaps psychosomatic illnesses and problems. So, But the people who really knew her on the inside have all pretty much said that if you knew her, if you were within her very close inner circle, if she trusted you and liked you, she could be the most wonderful, kind, generous and loving friend. But the trouble is that's not what the Russian people saw. It's not what her relatives saw. They just saw this really frosty and rather hostile woman who never made any real effort to integrate. And so for all those reasons, she just uh, she just really didn't strike any, up any kind of real relationship with the Russian people, but she thought she had. I mean, she was more Russian than the Russians, as sometimes people are when they're adopted into a new country. She adopted the Russian Orthodox religion. She was passionate and devout. 
about Russia and she thought the peasants loved her. But in fact, nobody, none of the, the Russian population at large had no idea of her. They hardly ever saw her. They didn't know who she was. She was just this very, very remote Tsaritsa who they didn't see very often. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. Is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So as I mentioned already, we've we've done a prior episode about Rasputin and his life, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about him, just because he was such an important part of the Empress's life. W- would you mind talking? Uh, well, who did you do the Rasputin one with? Uh, his name is Douglas Smith. Oh, Doug. I know Doug. Oh, well, Doug Doug has written a very, very good, uh, fairly revisionist biography of Rasputin, which I I concur with. I think his arguments are very interesting and redress the balance. The trouble with Rasputin and Alexandra and that whole relationship, and Doug's probably said this, is is that it's so um, layered over with Gossip, rumors, salacious, unfounded accusations, absurd 
stories about a sexual relationship, about her being enthralled to him, being mesmerized by him, you know, and all these absurd, equally absurd attributes that he was a mad monk. Well, he wasn't mad and he wasn't a monk. And it's very, very hard chipping away through all these layers of disinformation and gossip and, uh, and, and innuendo to get to the real person. And it took a huge labor of love by Doug Smith to do that in his book. I think we'll never really get to the truth about Rasputin, but I think now we can make some fairly um, educated um, guesses about the real man underneath all that salacious nonsense that was said about him. Yes, he liked to drink. Yes, he liked sex. There clearly was a debauched side to Rasputin, which he struggled with and um, uh, never quite, you know, got away from. But insofar as his relationship with the Romanos is concerned, his relationship to them was not exclusively about Alexei. And that's where I think the emphasis has been a bit skewed. People have assumed it was all about him rushing in there and performing miracles and making Alexei better. OK, he went to see them on occasion. Sometimes Alexei was ill and he'd sit pray by his bedside. Sometimes he wasn't even there when Alexei was ill. On one occasion, he sent a telegram and said, don't worry, it'll all be OK. Um, I think the thing with Rasputin is that Alexandra came to trust him and look up to him as a counsellor, a wise counsellor, as a guru, as a spiritual um, advisor, much more so than, you know, some magic man who came in and waved a wand and made her son better. But, um, you know, she she gravitated to him more and more and more because once Nicholas was away at the front during the war, he really was one of the few people she trusted. She saw him essentially as a friend. They called him our friend as a wise advisor. And that is, of course, where things, problems that were created because many in the government thought he was giving Alexandra far too much advice. Oh, and the Tsar too, because certainly he begged Nicholas not to go to war in the first place. But, um, I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of Rasputin's gifts, but I do think he had some kind of gifts as a healer. And I think fundamentally the gift he had was that he was able to reassure Alexandra and calm her and convince her that the boy would recover, that he would be all right. And by calming the mother, you then you stop the mother transmitting her anxieties to the child and by association the child perhaps then calms as well it's something to do with that kind of symbiosis between alexandra her anxieties and 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 communication of anxiety to the child also he did actually say probably quite wisely that they should stop the doctors from giving him aspirin, which thins the blood and is about the worst thing you should give a haemophiliac. And generally, just to hold back on all the medical intervention people were trying to do, because I don't think any of it worked. They didn't know how to treat haemophilia at the time. It was long, long before factor eight was invented, of course, and there was any treatment. So 
He may have advised her generally to do things that were, had a calming influence on the boy when he had his attacks of bleeding that may have slowed the bleeding. I think also definitely he had some kind of um, power of autosuggestion. He had a very sonorous and unusual voice. I think he could do what you call like a talking cure. You know, he could use the power of words to calm people, to persuade them, to, you know, to help them when they were perhaps distressed or, you know, suffering. The power of words in that sense was some kind of healing gift that he had. But again, it's very hard to explain it because there's so much evidence to the contrary about him being a charlatan and a quack and fake and, you know, being this monstrous um, sort of caricature, which he was not. So there was some relief by world leaders, monarchs, when Rasputin was was murdered by extended members of the royal family, correct? Well, you know, I mean, it wasn't just their relatives abroad who were relieved. It was especially the Russian aristocracy, the close relatives in Russia, who thought the only way to stop Russia heading for the precipice was to kill Rasputin because they thought he and Alexandra were German spies and they were, you know, going to, bring about the downfall of the throne. And they thought, you know, a quick and easy solution would be to kill Rasputin. But, of course, it was too late then. Uh, the, the writing was on the wall. The revolution was coming. It was just a matter of when. And that precipice, as you write in your book, it was reached through a number of things. The Russians took huge casualties during the war. There was starvation across the country. Well, no, not actually across the country. This is the this is the misconception. The cities were starving. The cities were starving because the infrastructure during the war was had collapsed. The rolling stock weren't in the right place, or the railway lines were were not functioning properly. There was plenty of food in the provinces. They couldn't get it into the cities. It was the cities were starving, and take a starving city like Petrograd, full of disgruntled workers and soldiers and people on leave and deserters and refugees, and that's a powder keg that's going to just go up. Absolutely. So I guess my question to you is this. There were some monarchs like King George who were able to see the writing on the wall before Nicholas did. Yeah. And he tried to warn them, Nicholas and Alexandra, about about the impending revolution. But it just fell on deaf ears. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, you cannot totally blame George for not trying because in the winter of 1916, through almost to just before the revolution, he was... Uh, arranging to send emissaries from Denmark to beg the Tsar to make political compromises. All his relatives were saying the same thing to him. You've got to make concessions. You've got to feed the people. You've got to give them some kind of form of democratic rights. You've got to actually give them a constitution. Um, but Nicholas was adamant that, you know, reform would be a catastrophe and um, he dug his heels in. But it was also his wife who dug her heels in. And all the time she was in the room, you know, she would make sure he made no concessions. And one of the ironies of this whole story is, of course, if she had been with him when the two ministers came to persuade him to abdicate, he would never have abdicated if he'd not been alone and isolated at the front. 
But, the, you know, everyone in the diplomatic community in, in Petrograd and in Moscow, all the foreigners, the diplomats, the military attaches, the, the foreign residents are all saying, and I've written a whole book about this, it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. And the Tsar seemed to be the only person who would not face the reality of that threat. I know it's Im- impossible to say, but what if he hadn't abdicated, do you think? W- would things have changed at all? Uh, I don't think there's any way he could have carried on in the way the situation was, uh, had, had become, without major compromises politically. Uh, the revolution, if he tried to hang on, could have ended up being ten times more violent and bloody. Um I think the interesting possibility is that after he abdicated, there was a period when the new, the provisional government, that was the vestiges of the members of the Duma and other liberal and landowning uh, members of the, the government tried to come together to perform, to, to create a provisional government until they could have elections to a proper constituent assembly. And and they really tried to offer a compromise under which there were many in that um, new government, provisional government, who would have supported some kind of restoration of the monarchy in terms of a regency with Alexei as Tsar. None of them wanted Nicholas back as Tsar. But Nicholas, of course, when he abdicated, abdicated also for his son because he knew his son would not live very long with the haemophilia. And also he knew, as did Alexandra, that if Alexei was made Tsar with a regent, they would be obliged to go into exile and they could not bear the thought of being separated from their boy. There's a quote in your book um, from a Bolshevik. I, I can't remember his name. He laughed when he heard that Nicholas had abdicated, saying it didn't really matter whether he had or not, with with the inference that the outcome would have been the same regardless. Well, yes, but it, 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 he abdicated thinking for the, for the sake of Russia to avoid more bloodshed. Yes, if he hadn't abdicated, the revolution would have been ten times more bloody and he would have been crushed probably anyway. Who's to say? Maybe the military might have rallied around him. We just don't know. But um, the Bolsheviks, were de- uh, the, the revolutionaries, it wasn't just the Bolsheviks, were determined that the old system, the old corrupt system had to go. So what was Nicholas's plan for moving his family out of harm's way? He didn't have a plan. He was powerless. Once he's abdicated, he's no longer czar. He didn't have any power to command anyone to do anything to help them. He was entirely at the mercy of what the provisional government could do to get them out and what his royal relatives or the allied governments in Europe might offer to do to help them. So he ideally... Uh, the initial discussions were that the British might take the family in until the war was over. I get them out of harm's way in the early days of the revolution until the world war was sorted and finished. And then they hoped that they might be able to go to Russia and that the political situation would have resolved itself. They never, ever agreed to the idea of leaving Russia forever. And indeed, I don't think they ever wanted to genuinely, really. I think they would have found it very, very hard to turn their backs on Russia. I mean, it was really the very last minute before the the family finally realized the true danger that they were in on the eve of the revolution. 
Well, yeah, I mean, he refused to accept it was going to happen. But of course, he was five or six hundred miles away at the front. So he didn't, he wasn't seeing at first hand what was going on in the cities. If Nicholas had been at, at the Alexander Palace when the disturbance broke out in February, he would have immediately taken control of the situation. It probably would have been uh, repressed. But because he was so far away, Alexandra stupidly thought, oh, this is just another protest, just another lot of marchers and rioters and protesters. And they'll all, you know, they'll all go home when the weather turns cold or if we give them some bread, they'll all shut up. And she completely misread the situation. Nicholas basically was not alerted to how serious it was. Otherwise, he would have come back from the front and might well have been able to defuse the situation. So. That was another thing that went completely wrong. Obviously, there was concern by family members and friends from other royal families throughout Europe about their safety. What were some of the early attempts to protect them? Well, you have to remember that um, really fundamentally, Nicholas and Alexandra's royal relatives, unlike them, were constitutional monarchs. They were answerable to constitutional government. They could not jump up and down and send rescue missions or order this, that and the other to be done. They could only ask or advise their respected governments to help. And situation was further complicated by the fact that all the Scandinavian relatives, the Danes, Norwegians and Swedes, who all in their various ways were related to Nicholas and Alexandra, they were all neutral. And they could not be seen to be interfering in the internal political situation in Russia. So all they could really do is send fire off memorandums and letters and please, uh, oh, please help them. You know, please don't let them come to any harm and and request other people like King George to do something. But the, the only real player in all of it who made any serious effort was, in fact, King Alfonso of Spain, who tried very hard on and off, making endless pleas um, on behalf of the Ramnos from March 17, right through until after they'd actually been killed. Because, of course, no one knew at first that all the family had been killed. So even after the Bolsheviks admitted to having shot Nicholas in July 1918, um, Alfonso and the others all hoped that the women, that Alexandra and the children were still safe, which is why... Um, he then turned and appealed to the Vatican and the Pope was got on board and the Vatican offered a refuge to the Romanovs and offered to support them financially. But the, see, it's not just a matter of some mon monarch or government somewhere in Europe saying, yes, we'll take you in, we'll give you a home, we'll sustain you financially. It wasn't simply a matter of that. It's how do you get them out? And this is the issue people haven't stopped to think about properly. People always say, oh, why didn't George save them? Why didn't he rescue them? Why didn't he bring them to England? How? How do you get seven people hundreds of miles up to either the coast at Murmansk, where the sea's frozen for half a year, so they'd have to wait for the, uh, the sea to unfreeze and for a ship to be made available to come and get them? You couldn't take them due west because there's a war raging in Europe. You couldn't take them south to Crimea because it was so far through um, rebellious territory. The peasants would have stopped the train and yanked them off. The only other way out was on the Trans-Siberian all the way across to Vladivostok. You know, whichever way 
you try to take the Romanovs out of Russia, you are immediately confronted by the problem that the Red Guards control the railways. In the end, it all, I think, boiled down to who was in control of the railways because the only way they could have even got them to the coast one way or another was by a train. And train trains could be stopped. Trains could be stormed. Um, and there were so many logistical problems in getting them out. Distances, weather, location. The children had all been sick with measles just before the revolution and were only just recovering. There were so many factors that come into play in this story that when you look at them all, you can see it's simply never, ever down to, oh, King George changed his mind. Yes, he lost his bottle. Um, he was a moral coward. He lost his nerve in terms of supporting his government's offer. But he couldn't do anything personally to get them out. So the, the provisional Russian government becomes responsible for the family. There was an attempt by the government to get them out by train early on. That didn't work. They were arrested, uh, confined to the palace. And then comes this now infamous telegram sent by King George to Nicholas, which you have very strong feelings about in your book and how it's been misunderstood. Well, it's not in... Oh, dear, this telegram is such has been so misread. People seem to assume this is where this is a typical example in the story where assumptions have been made and people haven't actually read things properly. They jumped to the wrong conclusion. What people assume King George sent a personal message to say to Nicholas saying, hello, come to England. I'm going to give you asylum and get you out. He did not. All he sent was a pretty tepid message of support saying, I've always been your friend, Nikki, and I'm basically saying, oh, I feel very sorry for you. What's happened? End of. It wasn't even an offer of rescue. It was simply a message of support. That telegram did not arrive until after Nicholas had abdicated and it was passed on by the British ambassador in Petrograd to the provisional government, to Milukov, the foreign minister, who decided they could not hand it over to Nicholas because it was addressed to the Tsar and he was no longer Tsar. And Nicholas was now a captive, a prisoner. So the fact is, the telegram actually was never handed over to the Tsar. He never knew about that message of support from George, but it was not an offer of asylum. King George himself never made a personal offer that was then rescinded. You know, the offer eventually came from his government, and they were pretty reluctant about doing so anyway. Okay, so you addressed the second point I wanted to make, some of these misconceptions you're breaking about King George offering asylum and then it being rescinded, the king didn't have the ability to offer asylum, is what you're saying. The government actually did not pursue their offer. They didn't actually withdraw it. It just withered on the vine because it became very clear after there had been some initial discussion between Sir George Buchanan and Miliukov, the foreign minister, about some kind of evacuation up to Murmansk and onto a British ship. That much was agreed in principle. It became very clear almost immediately that the very belligerent Petrograd Soviet of workers and soldiers' deputies was going to block 
any attempt to get the Romanovs out because they wanted retribution. They wanted a public trial. They probably wanted Nicholas executed, if not Alexandra as well. And they would have immediately blocked the Romanovs being put on a train out of Russia anyway. So that's another spanner in the works, you might say. So the family is sent to Siberia. Could you talk about their lives there and the continued attempts to try and save them? Well, this is a a big, big question, if you don't mind. So can we keep it a bit simpler? Yes, Um, yes, of course. Please answer however you'd like. um, In in August 1917, after the Romanovs had been held at the Alexander Palace as captives since the abdication in March, Kerensky, who was the head of the government, decided things were getting too dangerous for them, being so close to Petrograd, because sooner or later they knew the mob would come out and try and storm the palace and take Nicholas and Alexandra away and probably lynch them. So he decided they had to evacuate them to a more remote part of Russia until things quietened down. So he put them on a train to western Siberia, to Tobolsk, where they were housed... Uh, at uh, the governor's house there, had been the governor's house. And they stayed there from August till the following April. And they were actually fairly contented there. They were they were happy and grateful that they were still together as a family and hadn't been separated. It was very cold. They were on rations like everyone else. They suffered privations like everyone else. But in fact, they had moments of great happiness because they still had each other. Unfortunately, that situation changed because eventually Russia now, by the spring of 1918, was descending into civil war. The civil war was moving towards Tobolsk. Tobolsk had been a very remote region, snowed in for half the year, but even that was no longer very safe. And they were moved to Ekaterinburg, which was an absolute hotbed of um, Bolshevik radical uh, extremist Bolshevik support for the revolution. And that was where they were held in a house known as the Apartheid House. And it was where they were eventually murdered in July. Were there final attempts? Oh, sorry, you asked about attempts. Sorry, I'm just getting really tired. You must forgive me. Uh, oh, There no were problem. many groups and cliques and little underground cells of Russian monarchists scattered all over Siberia and They had supporters in Moscow, in Petrograd, raising funds for them. The trouble with the Russian monarchists is they never made any coherent plans for rescue. They had some fairly crazy sort of uh, boys, boys copy, uh, boys own paper type rescue ideas that would just would have been daft. It would would, would have been a bloodbath. The trouble with the monarchists is they didn't come together as a really cohesive group and really seriously plan a rescue. But any rescue attempt would require a massive backup of, you know, transportation, weapons, supplies, food, you name it. And, you know, this is a problem all the time was never enough funding to really set up a very efficient um, rescue of some kind that, with any hope of success. And again, even if the monarchists could have somehow sprung the Romanovs from Tabuz, that might have been possible because the house wasn't as heavily guarded. They've still got the problem even more so in Western Siberia of then getting them all the way from Western Siberia even further, over thousands of miles 
over a thousand miles north to the, you know, the safety of the Arctic and out that way. So the monarchist ideas were really very half baked and very muddled and the counts of them are muddled. So it's quite difficult to make any coherent sense of them. How long did it take for the world to learn of their deaths? Well, the Tsar's death was admitted to by the Bolsheviks within a day or two. They actually announced that Nicholas had been executed. Uh, but, of course, they're not going to go and admit that they've murdered the Tsaritsa and five innocent children. And so they kept shtum about that for quite a long time, which meant because they didn't admit to it, there was all this rumor and counter rumor and claims and uh, and stuff going on in the West of who was alive, had someone got away. And this is where the whole conspiracy theory denialist nonsense started, because the Bolsheviks did not clearly admit to killing the children. These myths and rumors about miraculous escape were allowed to to fester and uh, were encouraged over the years with a whole string of different false claimants. I mean, Anna Anderson, the most famous one who lived in America, who died in America eventually, um, was the one who attracted most press attention and was in and out of the courts for decades trying to pursue her claim to being Anna and An Anastasia. She and other people like her who kept popping up saying they were one or other member of the family, of course, just muddied the waters all the time. And all the, and the, and the Russians, the Soviets were quite let, happy to let everyone run around in circles wondering what had really happened. It suited their purposes because they didn't want to have to admit that they'd murdered the children and, and, and the Tsaritsa. When did these rumors begin? How long after did? Immediately. Immediately, Nicholas, the announcement was made was Nicholas was dead. But because there was no announcement that the, the rest of the family had been killed, people assumed that they'd been evacuated to a place of safety. Or maybe then some started to think, well, maybe they probably killed Alexei as the heir to the throne. But the women, people kept hoping against hope for months and years afterwards that the women had somehow been spirited away. And because the Bolsheviks didn't admit to it for several years, but by the time they did finally admit to killing them, all the gossip and the mythology and the rumor had been too well established and entrenched to die down. And even now, even after all these years, the DNA tests and everything that's been done, there are still crazy people out there who will not accept that the family all died at Ekaterinburg. There are still people out there who say, oh, no, they were all spirit away, spirited away and lived happily ever after, in, you know, in exile, which is complete nonsense, of course. Were the daughters ordered to be executed? They weren't executed. They weren't executed. They were brutally murdered. They were massacred. It was hideous what the Bolsheviks did to them in that cellar. The only person who had a quick and easy death was Nicholas, because they all fired at him first, wanting to lay claim to having killed the Tsar. It was savage what they did, because they were lousy shots. A lot of them missed, or their guns didn't work properly. In the end, there was this frenzy of bayoneting that they had to do to finish the girls off. So it was hideous, hideous what they did to them. One final question. I'd like to ask you about your research into the book. 
What were some of the things that you learned while digging around for information that, that hadn't been discovered before? And what were some of the primary sources you used in your research? Well, this is such a big question. I can't go through all the evidence and stuff. I mean, basically, my approach to this story in terms of the evidence was to go back over every single piece of paper I could lay hands on, every single document cited, every single argument made, and re-examine it and say, does this stack up? And there were lots of claims about this, that and the other, particularly mythical claims about rescue and houses being built for the family in Murmansk. And, um, you know, I had to go back over every single piece of paper that I could find in foreign office and cabinet office and war office records and track the various com- the conversations, the memos going back and forth between Britain and Russia in the early stages of, of the request to get them out. And it was basically um, not so much as, as finding fantastic, exciting new evidence as r- interpreting it correctly, because so much of the evidence had been misinterpreted. And so, some authors in the past have manipulated it to suit their own agendas. But I did find new material. I did search very hard. I um, enlisted the help of people all around the world to try and help me find new material. I looked in eight different sources in eight different languages, and I was able to find additional information that fleshed out the story and showed how complicated it was. But the trouble with the whole issue of getting the Romanovs out, particularly all these fanciful claims about you know, undercover secret service rescues, any such missions, if they ever happened and were aborted, which patently were, would have been done all through the back channels of foreign office and diplomatic records. There isn't a paper trail. If there ever was one, it may well have been destroyed. So there are a lot of dead ends in the story, but certainly I do hope I've unpicked as much of it as I can, and I said, look, let's just look at this document. What does it really say and what really happened? And in the end, it was just a huge search for anything and everything that might shed light on the way that the story has been told until now. One passage that really struck me, you, you had found in an American newspaper an interview that had been given. Yeah. With King Harkon, yes. Yeah, yeah, where he'd actually warned Nicholas. Mm, That was interesting. He gave Nicholas very, very sensible advice, which Nicholas totally ignored. And this is absolutely encapsulates the frustration of all his royal relatives with the Tsar because they offered advice repeatedly and he would listen and then he'd turn away, walk out the room and never act on it. And Harkon told him exactly what he should do, which is basically enfranchise his people, democratize, give them a constitution, make some of the smaller republics independent, i.e. deal with the disaffection, political, economic and otherwise, even in modest ways. And he might have been able to defuse the revolution. And I think it's a tragic that Nicholas did not listen to that advice. But Harkon was not the only king to offer very similar advice to that. So for people interested in learning more about you and your work, 
where can we direct them to, and what book should they start with? Um, should they start with your first, or can they jump right into this one? Well, first of all, I'm in the middle of an exhausting project constructing a massive new website that's going to be very comprehensive. It's going to have a lot of features and links to audio and visual stuff I've done. I'm writing special features on all my books and my work and my work ethos as a historian. So, But that site won't be active for probably a couple more weeks at least, but it will be very comprehensive and people will be able to find out about all my work there, all my appearances on the literary festival circuit, my public lectures. So that's my big project at the moment is to get the website up in terms of which book, I'd, you can really read the books in any, any order you like. But I mean, if you want to be sequential, then start with Four Sisters, which is essentially the private life of the family and takes you through the marriage, the birth of the children and goes up to the revolution and the arrest of the family. I deliberately do not cross over. I mean, I don't repeat myself with the books. So you you could then read a Berg about what happened to the family and how they were horribly murdered and the after effects of that, the impact of that murder. And then I guess you could read the new book, which is Why No One Could Save Them. Well, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Again, I've been talking to Helen Rappaport, author of The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. She'll be giving a public lecture at Mary Washington University in Fredericksburg, Virginia, on the Romanovs on April 4th of next year, if you'd like to see her in person. You can also learn more about her and her work by visiting her website, HelenRappaport.com, visiting her Facebook page, Helen Rappaport Writer, and following her on Twitter. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.